Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. So after a few close calls, I said I'd just email the local Garda station. A law was being broken, it's illegal to drive in a cycle lane. A local community guard explained the various reasons why they wouldn't be able to do anything about this. One of the reasons given was that it wouldn't be good for community relations or community policing to give fines out to commuters in the morning who were just trying to get to work. In this episode, we're going to consider the idea that different road users are policed differently. Con, who cycles as his primary mode of transport, talks to us about some experiences he's had as a cyclist with the Gardaí and concerns he has about how he's been treated. We'll also hear from Mike McKillen from Cyclist.ie, who believes this is an institutionalised problem in Angarda Síochána. My name is Con Donovan. I'm in my 30s and I live in Cork and I work as a primary school teacher. And um, a few years ago, when I started working in the city centre in Cork, I started cycling to work. Um, it's something I'd done before uh, in living in other cities, um, in the UK, on continental Europe. And for me, I suppose, I suppose I thought it was the sensible option. It was a short trip, very flat, would not take the car, would get some exercise, get to see some uh, some nature, uh, some fresh air in my face. Um, and I started, um, I suppose, becoming a daily commuter. And within a few months, I suppose, I was just noticing some issues and um, started looking at ways to make it both easier to cycle and safer to cycle. As regular listeners will know, I ask our guests what their perception of the guards was when they were younger. I remember in primary school, we had, you know, the guard come in maybe once a year for the chat about who the guards were and what they did. You know, never did any reason to, you know, to go to the guards, wasn't a victim of a crime. And, you know, you might see a guard, a squad car driving around the village, but wouldn't have known the names of uh, the local guards. Um, as I became a teenager, there might have been a few instances where, you know, a squad car came along and asked a group of, you know, 20 lads to move on. Uh, or maybe you not know, to kind of you know to kick a ball somewhere else because a complaint came in, but it was you know low level stuff. I'd imagine the same as most teenagers in Ireland. But Con has had a couple of experiences while cycling in Cork that have impacted on his perception. I suppose my first would have been um, a complaint I made regarding an incident that happened one day when I was out cycling. So I was um, coming back from the gym on a, a Thursday afternoon, and when I was waiting at a T junction. Uh, for breaking traffic to cross the road, a car would have um, come in the inside of me um, and undertaken me when I told it was my turn to go next. So um, as I was going out, the car came at the same time, kind of took a bit of a wobble, had to put the foot down, but didn't fall over, no no injury or such. Um, but, you know, 20 metres later when that car was parked in traffic, um, I just kind of did the, the polite, can you wait down your window um, routine to speak to the driver and just kind of, you know, set out what I thought happened and, you know, very polite terms. You said, look, can we be a bit more mindful about vulnerable road users, of which I was at the time, and just got a bit of grief back. Um, you know, there was a bit of um, bit of foul language, so I just thought, look, best to leave it here. Uh, I've done my piece, I can't say any more. 
and then about maybe 400 meters later uh, on a straight stretch of road the same car passed me and it performed what I considered a punishment pass so a punishment pass is when someone uh, close passes you uh, and you've reason to believe I suppose that it's in retaliation of something that happened earlier or because of a grievance so it's not like a normal close pass where you know you think okay that car misjudged the distance between their vehicle and you on the bike this felt quite aggravated I suppose it's something that happens to a lot of people cycling and you know you can get a range of emotions like I remember when that happened to me you have a surge of adrenaline going through your body so most people pull over because you know they find it hard to still cycle you know your hands are shaking you know it's not necessary that you're you know angry you're actually quite shook from it Close passes are incredibly dangerous and police in the UK estimate that they are a contributing factor in 25% of collisions between cyclists and large vehicles. As the car pulled off, I, I remember just memorising the licence plate and just kept saying it over my head until I typed it into my phone. So I continued on my journey and um, just literally Googled, you know, dangerous driving complaint um, and I found a number for traffic watch. So um I think when you phone traffic watch, it's a, it's a civilian you speak to. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, to, you know, a, a lady on the phone took my details and said, look, you get a phone call back from a, from a local guard station. And um, I think I received a call back the next morning. This is my first experience, I suppose, of, you know, of going to the guards proactively about an issue in my life. And the first, one of the first things that was mentioned was, um, you know, would you be happy with going to court about this? Which I thought was a bit strange because... You know, that wasn't my big concern at the moment or at that time. I kind of want to know, like, you know, would this person face, uh, you know, a penalty points or a charge or, you know, something more serious after this incident. But, you know, all of a sudden now I felt like it was pushed back on me and um, the onus is on me to bring this forward. And, you know, it's something that I suppose being innocent, you think that like if you if you saw someone throwing a knife around the city centre and you call and, you know, that to the guard station, you wouldn't expect the guard to say, well, do you want to make, you know, are you making a complaint here? You think that, look, you know, I'm being a good citizen. I'm reporting something dangerous. You know, now the onus is on you to go out and, you know, solve the crime or address this issue. But in this case, you know, I thought it was, um, it was definitely worth making a statement because, you know, this was a quite aggravated incident. Um, you know, I hadn't been injured. I, you know, I was unscathed, but you do wonder about, you know, whether this person might do something similar to other people or whether they've, negative views towards people who, who cycle or walk or scoot or whatever uh, and whether it would happen again. So I um, made an appointment um, with the guard to go and make a statement and that all went fine and then I heard nothing for six months. In that time, you know, I would have spoke to other people who, you know, faced similar issues and one of the big things people said was uh, go off and buy a camera to start recording your cycles. Um, you know, which seems like a big investment. You know, you're, you're talking about spending maybe 150 to 300 euro just to record incidents that you know so you can now go to the guards with evidence and I think people were giving me that advice because they had, would have reported stuff in the past and one of the answers they got back was look it's your word against their word there's no proof there's no CCTV uh, you know you there, there was no you know a guard didn't come to the scene of the crime because, you know, most people, if they do have this kind of a closed pass or, you know, an incident with a vehicle, they don't stand at the side of a road and wait for a guard to come. They usually just carry on their journey. And, you know, that evening or the next morning, they'll phone it in. So I got a call back about six months later and the guard apologised for the delay. There'd been a personal issue. Um, you know, that, that was fine. I, I thought maybe, you know, 
like in other jobs, maybe it would go to someone else who was in the office at the time, but um, I suppose that's a resourcing issue. Uh, and the guard said that he had spoken to the um, the driver of the vehicle. I think I remember, you know, terms like, look, lovely guy, you know, salt of the earth, you know, um, denied what happened. Uh, you know, your interpretation and his interpretation of what happened were very different. Um, and then it ultimately came down to... Um, the fact that the, the guard's uh, superior uh, or the guard in question superior felt there wasn't enough uh, for this to go forward to, to court, uh, so it was being dropped. It, it's it's not the worst thing that ever happened, but it's very indicative of what people experience when they report dangerous driving. Um, and dangerous driving isn't like an abstract topic. Um, you know, there are literally dozens of people who die every year on our roads. Um, you know, I looked up some numbers this morning. There was 38 murders and 38 dangerous driving deaths in 2018. So it's almost on a, you know, a, a similar scale as what we consider classic murders. And yet my experience when I tried to report something that could have been, in my eyes, a murder if I'd you know, been hit when this car passed me at 70, you know, literally a foot away from me. The first question I was faced with was, you know, do you want to go to court with this? Are you happy to push on with this? That seems very strange. Like, you know, I feel like if I was in my house and, you know, someone broke in and was standing at, you know, the bottom of my bed with a gun and I reported it wouldn't have gone away with like, you know, okay, are you sure you want to go ahead with this? You know, there would have been a detective, there would have been, you know, um, a bit of emphasis put onto this. And, you know, there are a lot of people out driving. I understand there's a, you know, the guards could be faced with these questions, um, you know, day in, day out, but it's still, I think it's important for them to investigate them uh, and to look into them because, you know, I was lucky that they, you know, I walked away from it, no problem, but who's to say that it could have gone a lot worse or that person driving is doing that every day, you know, seven days a week on the roads. 149 people died on our roads in 2020. Almost half of those deaths were of persons not in cars, either cyclists, pedestrians or motorcyclists. We've done huge work in this space. Over 600 people died annually on the roads in the 1970s over 400 in the 90s and over 300 in the noughties. Every one of those deaths is a devastated family. Roads policing is where the Gardaí encounter a very substantial amount of the death that they deal with. It can be a highly traumatising part of their job. But it's also a space where we've proven over time that policing can be highly effective. Road design and car safety are hugely contributing factors to those reductions. But policing has also a huge bearing on road safety. And we most obviously see this in relation to speeding and drink driving. Work done by West Midlands Police, specifically on close passes, reduced the number of collisions involving death or serious injury by 20% in the first year. So the experience Con reported is linked very directly to road safety and can be effectively policed. But when he reported it, he was met with passivity, delay, and felt the burden was put on him to pursue it. And because this is a reality that those who commute on bikes face every day, they've now had to equip themselves in ways that drivers would never think of doing. This is the, one of the reasons that you know people go off and buy cameras because you can now show evidence of what you've experienced, and it's not just you know your word or you know grainy CCTV footage from a petrol station across the road. You can show now what you experience on the bike. So um, a lot more people now are, are recording these incidents. There's one um, one person who cycles in Cork. Uh, he's a very active social media page, uh, and he regularly. 
and post videos of some of the experiences he has when cycling in Cork and he'd often say no he'd have follow-ups to show look this person received penalty points this person you know was spoken to it or you know there wasn't evidence in this case or you know the guards didn't feel that it was um it was enough to uh, go forward with this is goes back to like you know what sort of um what sort of country or what sort of town or village do we want do we want a situation where everyone who gets on a bicycle is recording themselves so they have proof of their experiences there is a lot of emphasis on cycling like keep yourself safe but you know i always think if we start thinking here you know let's all wear um you know knife proof vests or bulletproof vests to stop you know if you want to keep yourself safe you know there's i mean it's a bottomless fit in terms of like you know how far do you go to keep yourself safe you probably never leave the house if you wanted 100 percent safety guaranteed so you know we have to weigh up these things i think it's very unfortunate that people are spending hundreds of euro on cameras whether they're on their bike or their helmet or on their bodies just to show some of the experiences they have while doing what should be very very simple and normal activity While we do increasingly have CCTV cameras in public spaces, I struggle to think of another scenario where we would tolerate victims having to wear personal cameras to prove whether or not they have been a victim. Particularly in a space where we know there are direct and effective actions police can take to reduce these crimes. And it is a crime to overtake a cyclist dangerously. I think sometimes that people behave like they have a right to drive, which you don't. It's something you can gain a license for if you behave appropriately. And Con reflected on those cultural attitudes. If you have a, a negative experience as a, an active travel user, you know, a cyclist or a pedestrian with the guards, it's probably not because of one guard's you know, views towards people who cycle or, or towards people who walk. Their, their views are usually shaped in our societal views. And unfortunately, the moment our societal views are, you got to be safe when you go walk. You, you got to put on your high vis. You got to stick to the footpath. You go, you know, go to certain times of day. When you're cycling, you have to wear a helmet. You have to cycle as close as you can to the left hand side of the road. You know, single file, avoid busy roads, like be as safe as you can. And yet, we seem to give. You know, we have rules for for people who drive. You know, like most people in this country, I also have a car. And um, I'm aware of those rules, but we don't seem to put the same emphasis on, you know, changing the narrative about driving and our responsibilities as drivers as we are about our responsibilities as when we walk and when we cycle. This is going to be a problem for, you know, potentially a long time in Ireland. Um, it's not a huge concern in other cities where they've just removed this whole problem by segregating people who walk, people who cycle and motorised vehicles. Um, so a lot of Northern European countries like the Netherlands, you know, you can cycle for kilometre after kilometre on dedicated cycle paths. And then it doesn't become an issue that, you know, you're not wearing the right clothes or the right gear or, you know, you're not recording your, your journey because you don't come into contact with cars. Um, and when you do at junctions, there's very strict rules um, on how those cars are supposed to engage with you. Um, they have actually strict liability in a lot of these countries. So there's an assumption that if there's a collision between a cyclist and a motorist vehicle, the motorist vehicle or the person driving that car has to show how they weren't at fault. Whereas there's probably a perception in Ireland that if someone gets knocked down, when cycling, the first thing we think of, you know, what what was the bright, you know, um, what were they wearing, what was the weather like, um, you know, did they come, you know, quote unquote, come out of nowhere? Um, so all these questions, like the assumption is that, you know, the person driving was just going about their business 
and then this, you know, unknown force came into their world, um, you know, and was somehow responsible. And then, you know, that kind of shapes the whole narrative of how this goes forward. And you could even see this in how things are reported. And, you know, we, we, we don't give, um, you know, when you see um, incidents reported in the news, like, you know, the term accident is used without knowing whether it's an accident or not. A car drove into a pedestrian. You know, that car was driven by someone. It didn't just, you know, set out on a journey all by its own. Or another, like, there was a collision between, you know, a truck and a cyclist. You know, if, if the truck is stationary, the cyclist, you know, collides with it. But more than likely not, the truck is going faster and it has collided into the cyclist. So, um, you know, these are kind of bigger issues, I suppose. And, you know, it's not that the guards are, you know, causing issues, but they're certainly not challenging them. Um, and I think there's definitely a lot of space for self-reflection in terms of like, OK, how are we reporting incidents? Are we attributing blame? Um, are we helping the people who are most vulnerable, who will, you know, nine times out of ten be the person who's walking or cycling? So we could be doing much more to ensure the safety of people using our roads, to reduce those numbers of deaths even further. But we're currently very accepting of certain narratives, evidential requirements and infrastructure. It's important that we reflect on what role the Gardaí do and could play in this. They are the agency that enforce road safety, so they potentially have a decisive role. But also when we think of the power of the police, it's more than just the power to enforce laws. The police have a wider social power. They can name things as right or wrong. And we as a society listen to that. We talked about this labelling power in the last episode, but beyond at the individual level, if the Guardi launched a campaign clearly calling out that close passes are criminal and will not be tolerated, that could quite easily become part of the accepted narrative around this. We must question what the Guardi could do in this space and why they aren't doing it, given what's at stake. I spoke to Mike McKillen of Cyclist.ie. There's a lot wrong with road safety in Ireland. I mean, internationally, we're performing well. In, well, even in a European context, we perform well because if you just look at road safety and measure it on the basis of fatalities, then you know, we've got our overall fatalities down quite significantly during the period of the last road safety strategy. But bicycle users and pedestrians, unfortunately, have not fallen in proportion to the reduction that we've seen in car occupants, that's drivers and passengers. And there's a reason for that in that the car manufacturers internationally have made cars a lot safer for the occupants, but they haven't made cars, vehicles generally safer for the people outside those vehicles. So there's a mismatch. Cyclist.ie made a detailed submission to the most recent road safety strategy in which they highlighted everything from driving instructors being more familiar with cyclist perspectives to speeds. He spoke to this point of Gardaí not necessarily wanting to enforce certain laws. They are really not focusing to any great extent on 30 kilometer per hour zones. Now, there's a reason for this, and it's a policy reason. They don't like 30 kilometer per hour speed limits because they think it's too slow a speed for drivers and the drivers just simply won't pay attention to it. So they would be catching hundreds of drivers every time they went out. And of course, what that does is it generates 
a background in the driving uh, members of, of society of hatred towards the police, the Garda. And that's not good for overall policing if you've got a disgruntled section of the society. It means that the feedback of intelligence to them slows down and they don't really want to annoy drivers that much. Now, that's my analysis, my personal analysis, and it's shared by lots of people in organized cycling campaigning. Have they, have they actually said that? They have said it. You see, wearing my cyclist.ie hat um, three times a year, I do meet with the senior um, officers in the road policing um, division up at Phoenix Park, National um, Road Policing Bureau in Phoenix Park. And that's a tripartite meeting. It includes the Road Safety Authority as well as the Guard of Members. And that's, they've said that they don't like enforcing uh, 30 kilometers per hour speed limits. Now, what they want is they want the speed limit to be self-enforcing. So they want traffic engineers to redesign our roads so that drivers will understand they're in a 30 kilometer per, zone, uh, kilometer per hour zone and um, not speed. You know, you there are engineering ways of achieving this. But it means extensive road remodeling, and that costs money. You know, so on the continent, the Dutch are good at this, the Danes are good at it, and the French to some extent. But we really haven't begun to go down that route. So we do rely, uh, we, if we want 30 kilometers per hour speed limits to be observed, then we do need a detection and enforcement of them. But on reflection, this would have been the case in the 1980s when we began to criminalise drink driving in a serious way. This was undoubtedly unpopular, but the benefits have been incalculable and generally go unquestioned. It's a clear example of the pivotal role the police can play in doing the right thing rather than the popular thing. And Mike explores how challenging doing the right thing can be. Let's then look at the gold safe vans that you'll see around the country that are automatic detection of speed and then you get the FCPN and the post. Those vans, when they were introduced, there was uproar from the motoring uh, public. And indeed, some of the vans were burnt out. And, you know, the technician in the, in the van, you know, had to run for their lives because, you know, they would have been burnt alive in it. Uh, but that, that's the level of, of public non-acceptance of any tr- attempt by society to control speed. They don't like it. So yes, this can be challenging work, but that's not a reason not to do it. Khan talked us through the second time he engaged with the Guardi on policing. This is more something that was kind of, I suppose, bugging me. Um, and again, I could see how an accident was going to happen. So um, you had an incident of an on-road cycle track, which is basically, um, you know, next to the road surface is a white line and then there's a red paint with a bike logo on it. And uh, this would have gone on for maybe a kilometre. But at the end of that cycle lane, the cycle lane turned into a left uh, turn at a junction. So when traffic was built up, usually in the mornings at rush hour, um, a lot of cars or a lot of people driving would look at that cycle lane and think, if I just you know drive along here, then I can turn left at the bottom and I don't have to queue up at the junction. Uh, and that was all grand. But what I was finding when I was cycling that cycle lane that um, you know I could be cycling at maybe 25 kilometers an hour and I'd hear a noise and I look behind and you know there's a car and someone is almost flashing me to tell me get out of the way because they want to drive at 50 
uh, to skip the queue traffic and then one car might go along and then other cars would see other people would see that person driving so they think well look if one person does it then i'll do it so in other instances i'd be cycling along there'd be a car in front of me in the cycle lane driving along and then someone would think okay you know time for me to move out too so uh, a car would just come out of the normal lane of traffic and into the bike lane so after a few kind of um close calls i suppose i said i'd just email the local guard station so i emailed in and I said, look, there's an incident um, in the cycle lane where, you know, cars are, are driving at speed and they're, you know, they're pulling out. Um, you know, could it be looked into? And I think I mentioned, you know, if we could, if a guard could go down there, you know, on one morning and just, you know, like a law was being broken. It's illegal to drive in a cycle lane. I wasn't asking for fines. I said, if, if you could just explain the risks involved, you know, why this wasn't a good idea. And um, I got a phone call back, you know, maybe a week later saying, look, could you come in for a chat about it? So I went in and... Um, a local community guard explained um, the various reasons why they wouldn't be able to do anything about this and uh, it was a bit of an eye-opener so um, one of the reasons given was that it wouldn't be good for community relations or community policing to give fines out to commuters in the morning who were just trying to get to work um, and I think I tried to explain you know to the guard that I was also trying to get to work safely uh, and you know realistically my safety should triumph other people's convenience you know, these people are only saving maybe 90 seconds or two minutes by skipping a queue of cars. Um, but, you know, my and other people's, you know, well-being was put at risk. And then, you know, it, we just got into a very strange conversation about, you know, how the cycle lane was poorly designed and how it was the, the county council's fault for putting it that way. And, you know, people had, were ringing the garbage station to get it removed. And, you know, it was... It shouldn't have been there in the first place. And then the conversation kind of veered on to um, other instances of, you know, how to protect yourself when out cycling. And um, it just seemed like a very strange conversation to have when you were reporting what essentially was, you know, a road traffic crime. So it, it kind of, it was concerning that, you know, my or people's cycling safety wasn't a priority, but, you know, getting cars to move around quickly um, without undue stress or burden seemed to be a higher priority. In ordinary times, I drive to work every day and avoiding traffic is always a primary concern. It's even a factor I take into account in deciding where to rent and live. When I get into the car, I'm thinking about how long it'll take me to get to work. Because of speed limits, traffic and improved car safety, my personal safety is not something I have to take into account. I'm trying to imagine how I would feel if I reported to the Guardi that I felt unsafe in a place on a regular basis because others are breaking the law and I was told, sorry, but it'll annoy people if we enforce the law, so we're not going to. And of course, cyclists break laws too, and that should also be enforced. But if you're in your car, the risk to you is far less than it is to a cyclist. It was definitely frustrating and, um, you know, since then, the that cycling has been segregated by kind of a um, plastic bollards, I suppose, or, or orcas that the, uh, the city council put in. So it's not an issue anymore. But you know, at the time, it was it was very very frustrating to go in to a guard station and and set out a case why something should be changed, and it just wasn't given any sort of um any merit. And you know, you're walking out scratching your head, thinking, you know, one of the big responsibilities the guards have is road traffic policing. You know, if I was cycling my bike in a on a footpath 
I, you know, and it was no good grounds for me to cycle on a footpath. I'd fully expect to get a 50 or fine. You know, if I went into the city centre in Cork and if I cycled down Paul Street at 30 kilometres an hour, if there was a guard waiting at the end, you know, with a pencil or a pen in his hand and waiting for it in my ticket, I'd put my hands up and say, you know, mea culpa, I broke the law here. What I wouldn't expect would, would be for that guard to say, you know, I can't not give you a fine because that wouldn't be great for, you know, community relations or, you know, you're right to be cycling there because this is a poorly designed pedestrianised area or something like that. So, um, yeah, it was it was frustrating. So the council agreed and took action, irrespective of what commuters would think about it. But the Gardaí wouldn't do this. Think about how that would leave you feeling about the Gardaí. Again, this, was, this goes back to what, what I mentioned earlier about, like, you know, the kind of narratives we have in Ireland about um about people who cycle and, and people who walk, the onus is always on you to stay safe. Um, and in this instance, even though you know cars were driving at fifty kilometers an hour in a cycle lane, we were still talking about what I could do to keep myself safe. You know, surely the safest thing I could find myself in would be a situation where there weren't cars in the space I was using and veering into that space uh, and enabled to drive in a place that shouldn't have been day in, day out for years on end. Um, but it just didn't seem to be a priority. Now, you know, things might change in the next few years that they could have been old-fashioned views um, of just one representative of Avgarda Shikana. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to know, I suppose, when you have limited experiences of, like, what's culture and what's just, you know, unfortunate. Um, and, you know, it is hard. I'm not sure the numbers of, of guards we have in Ireland, but, you know, we can't expect them all to sing off the same hymn sheet for every issue. But definitely think with active travel, given the number of deaths and injuries and fear people have, you know, it would be a good idea for, you know, a very robust and, you know, public communication plan to be out there. And, you know, so for people to expect, look, if you if you are knocked down, this is what's going to happen. If you aren't knocked down, but you witness dangerous driving, here's how you can report it. If you see things that are potentially going to happen, please report it here. A quick interruption to ask you, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and rate us and head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack and support us in bringing all of this content to you. It's the price of a cup a month and you'll get access to versions of the episodes without interruptions like this. And if you're not in a position to support the podcast, we'd appreciate you sharing it with your friends and you can follow us on Twitter at Policed Podcast. Uh, one of the things actually when, when I spoke to that guard about um, the cars driving in the cycle lane, kind of resources was brought up and you know the guard mentioned that we couldn't go on this morning because we're doing you know drink driving checks and we you know kind of targets to make in terms of like how many checkpoints we do every week and you know how many breathalyzers to hand out and whatnot you know which, which is great like we can all understand the dangers of drink driving but it seemed odd that you know one hour couldn't be given for a week uh, to address an issue there seems to be a perception that roads policing is about policing things like car crashes, um, you know, drink driving and speeding, and then that's it. You know, we, we don't see the same emphasis on what cars are doing on footpaths, what cars are doing on cycle lanes, or even, you know, what, what cyclists are doing. Like, you know, I've never seen a cyclist um, fined for, you know, breaking a red light uh, or cycling, you know, dangerously or cycling on a footpath dangerously. Those are crimes. You know, if you do that and you are fined, you have no recourse. Um, but it seems to be that most of the resources are allocated towards responding to crashes, which, you know, it's unfortunate the guards have to go to those things often. Um, and then just kind of the standard, you know, 
drink driving um, checkpoints, uh, tax and insurance, or um, speed checks. As always, I link this back to police culture. We've mentioned before machismo as part of the culture, but another aspect of culture is what Robert Reiner calls the thirst for action. Policing can be a deeply tedious job, but there is a sense to which people live for the moments of the action, the thrill of the chase, going after the bad guys and so on. If you've seen the movie Hot Fuzz, I always think this is perfectly captured by the country cop who keeps asking about firing his gun up in the air like in Bad Boys. This is relevant here because that culture is about fast cars and guns. It's not starting from a viewpoint of someone who chooses cycling over cars. Motorbikes, sure, but not bicycles. Only, let's say, 5% of people cycle as a form of transport daily in Ireland. Uh, So like they they either go to school or work or, you know, to get their their groceries and do their messages. Statistically, a guard doesn't cycle to work. You know, they might go on a Sunday morning as a, you know, a recreational cyclist, you know, what I consider like a club cyclist, so, you know, with, with a group or in a club. And, you know, when you're, the experience you have, as a, you have as a club cyclist, as opposed to a commuter or a utility cyclist, are very different. So if a guard isn't doing something that a lot of people are experiencing in a city, they may not have, you know, a true reflection of what it's like or you know, identify with that person. So like, um, we can all identify as pedestrians. You know, we've all walked places. We all know what it feels like to walk on a footpath, on a boreen, you know, on a busy road. Not a lot of a cycle in our cities and in our towns. So I often wonder when you do bring something to, to a guard, like, you know, do they appreciate what it feels like to be, you know, shouted at? Do they appreciate what it feels like if a car cuts in front of you? Um, or if you're cycling in a cycle lane and there's a car driving in a cycle lane behind you, beeping at you because you're slowing him down. I don't know, are we ever going to get to a place in Ireland where your local guard hops on his bike and cycles down to the local station? You know, he, he might be in a minority of um, guards who go out, you know, like quote unquote on the beat on a bicycle once a week. And, you know, we see those guards in the city centre. But even, you know, I don't think those guards identify as cyclists or as people who cycle because they're going all over footpaths. They're going, you know, through pedestrianized areas. They're not necessarily, you know, cycling around the city like, you know, another person would, like if they were leaving school or coming home from college and they have to go from A to B. It's more kind of like, you know, you're out taking in, you know, what's happening around you and you happen to be on a bike as opposed to traveling by bicycle. It's interesting historically because until the 1950s or so, the vast majority of Gardaí, just as in other countries, travelled by bike or foot. When cars became viable, there was quite a rush to get them. They were modern and fast. And policing quickly moved to cars and to radio. It changed the whole way the police engaged with people. They became what's referred to as a fire brigade service meaning that they primarily responded to call-outs rather than being on the street and available. It also limited the conversations they had with people on the street and the extent to which people knew, by sight at least, their local police. So the move to cars felt modern and professional, but it came at a price and now it's the norm. And that historical connection to bikes has been severed entirely, both practically and culturally. Mike McKillen actually takes this point further to talk about the breadth of the function of Angarda Siakana. You see, I think we've got a problem in this country in that our 
national security and our everyday policing is rolled into the one organization. And I've always argued from long before the policing authority was set up that we should have separated national security uh, from ordinary everyday policing. And because on Garda Shikona still have the, 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 the feeling that if they annoy too many people or too large a proportion in our society, the flow of intelligence then will cease. Mm. And that, that's a problem. The opposite side of that is the people, the Garda members that apply for transfer to the road policing unit, I would think, I have no evidence, but I would think would be what we would call petrol heads. In other words, they want to be able to drive a car fast or a motorbike fast because society has given them a license to drive as fast as they want. And it's a self-selecting um, process. In other words, if you become a member of the road, any road policing unit, you automatically have selected yourself because you want to be able to drive fast without any, any speed limit operating on you. And that's what makes road policing different. I think we do need to, we do need to examine roads policing at a, at a national level and really ask, you know, what's its function? There's also a significant issue around how cyclists are treated when they do report incidents. If there was a, a system to report incidents that people experience that you know was more neutral, it would lead to more reporting. Like more reporting is only going to be a good thing. If you have a group of people who can tell you about dangerous behaviour, and some of that dangerous behaviour is having real effects, you know, in terms of collisions, injuries. Or just the fear factor it can only make it better you know we can't have a system whereby the guards think of a cyclist as you know plaguing them with issues or plaguing them with video footage and um, there was an incident in cork in the last six months of um someone posted a video of uh, a close pass they'd had and the answer they got back from the local station was that the person cycling was being charged with dangerous cycling because they were veering. Now, there was potholes in the road. It didn't seem to me as someone who cycles that, you know, the cyclist was going out of his way uh, to make trouble for themselves or to, you know, to ride in a way which was dangerous to their health or well-being or the other per- the person driving's well to well-being. But the context here was that this would have been maybe the 30th incident of the, the cyclist reporting an issue and having, you know, reasonably good footage of an incident. So, it seemed to be sending a message, you know, we're kind of fed up here with what you're doing. And, you know, if we give you a fine, it might kind of, you know, result in less footage coming in. You know, that was very worrying for me. I don't think anyone goes out looking for footage or looking for an incident. You know, like the margins are too narrow. If you're standing at the side of a road just taking videos, you don't have any skin in the game. When you're on a bicycle, and you're traveling at maybe 30 kilometers an hour and someone passes you and they're touching your elbow, you know, the, the wing mirror of the car is hitting your elbow. You know, you're not doing that for, for the fun or just, you know, to get someone in trouble. That's an experience you've had that, you know, it's probably terrified you. Um, so it's very worrying to hear reports that, you know, someone's then being charged with, you know, cycling in a dangerous manner or cycling in a manner, you know, um, that needs to be kind of um, reprimanded with, you know, I think this person was told that they were looking at like a fine. Now the fine wasn't, you know, I think it was only 50 euro. It wasn't a huge uh, sum of money, but the message seemed to be, okay, buddy, we've had enough of your, your footage now, you know, lay off it for a while. 
that that's probably not a space we want to be in in Ireland. You know, if, if we're going for safety, surely someone's showing footage of you know bad behaviour can only have positive outcomes. This is problematic. If police have decided that certain work is not important or maybe even not their job, they can dismiss those who engage on that topic as rubbish work or even troublemakers. This used to be how domestic violence was predominantly viewed, but we've seen massive internal work in recent years that shows that it's being taken seriously and given the appropriate attention. These are attitudes which can and should be addressed internally. Mike is also concerned about this. People using bikes now have either a helmet cam or they have a a camera mounted on their handlebars. And some have rear-facing cameras as well to catch a glimpse of the driver, what the driver may be doing behind you before they actually overtake you. And what we're doing is we're submitting these now to local um, stations within the area where the offence, alleged offence, was detected on, on the film. And it's a long rigmarole, whereas you've got to go down to the station with it on the, in the camera because a lot of the um, uh, members in charge insist that it come in the camera so that they can download it, opportunity evidence trail. But others will take it on a USB, so there's no consistency. And then, so the member taking the details then has to go to higher up. And I think it's chief inspector or rank inspector or above. And they review it and they will say, yeah, that's a dangerous overtake or nope, see nothing wrong there. And a lot of a lot of these um, formal video evidence um, have been presented over the past year, and it's like a postal lottery. It depends on the inspector or the superintendent that you get, that they have some understanding of cycling and what constitutes dangerous overtaking or not. Whereas police forces elsewhere in Europe have a, a portal, a web portal, and you just simply log on and you upload the video uh, directly to the web portal. And then it's reviewed by a, a panel of um, police officers who have experience of cycling in traffic, and they make the decision. And that's what we want to see here. And that was also in our cycle study um, submission on the government's road safety strategy review. So there are problems with it. It's a postcode lottery. And, it, and it's, the decision is not appealable. And that's what I find quite disturbing. Um, because if the inspector is a car driver who has no comprehension of what it's like to be out in a bike in traffic, then it will fall foul of his or her interpretation. And you've so, described that before as almost an institutional blindness. Yeah, that's the, that's the word that I on Twitter I tend to use that institutional blindness within our roads policing uh, units around the country. Yeah, because they are mostly car drivers mm. and self-selecting to be a fast car driver. And this gets played out and reinforced throughout the legal system. To recall a few incidents uh, in the last few years, um, a man was killed cycling in Cork. They went to court. The driver admitted they took drivers off the road, you know, momentary lapse in, in attention, suspended sentence. You know, I, I can't think of another um, another crime where if you resulted in the death of someone, 
and you said, you know, I, I had a huge negligence here. You know, fair enough, I didn't wake up and think I'm going to, you know, go out and cause someone harm. But when your negligence results in a debt, it seems strange that, you know, you walk away with a suspended sentence. And of course, that just feeds the whole cycle again of people having these attitudes yeah. around road usage. And, yeah. yeah, it's a very strange space to be in that, you know, there's the likelihood for injury and debt, and yet it seems to be trivial. The, I didn't feel like an issue that, you know, nearly resulted in my debt was given the the attention what I've received. And, you know, realistically, that's going to mean that the next time it happens, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders. I think, you know, I've been through this already. I was told nothing can be done. I didn't have footage. I didn't have, um, you know, uh, proof of it happening. Um, and I think, you know, the reason we're seeing so many people post videos on social media of, of experience to have in their cycling is that they don't know what else to do. They've tried the local guard station. It's gone nowhere. So they just think, I might as well put it on YouTube. And of course, we can't talk about the need to make cycling safer without contextualising it in the environmental issue. It has to be then set in the context of government policy on climate action. We're in a climate crisis. And you know, report after report, government policy after government policy is very clear. People have to stop using the car for every footling uh, trip. So in other words, if you have to go and get a litre of milk, you don't get into the car to go, you know, 300 metres to the local garage to pick up your litre of milk. You get on your bicycle or you walk. So transport has to play a major role in decarbonising the Irish economy. And what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, you've got to start walking, you've got to start taking a bicycle, you've got to start using public transport because agriculture and transport are the biggest emitters. So it's vital that we um, get people to use cars less frequently. And this is a challenge when thought about from the policing perspective, because we are then saying that what the police do is not only about law enforcement and road safety, but also connected to climate change, which is not a space that the guards are used to dealing in. Culturally, it's not seen as part of their role. So that question of thinking about the road strategy and what role the Gardaí play in that is a necessary conversation. And you've had some engagements as well with the guards as you know through groups that you're involved with um what have those been like um generally positive um so the, the cork cycling campaign would have um started meeting uh the roads, roads policing guards in cork um about two years ago Um, i think this all came about um after there was kind of a clampdown on uh, illegal cycling in cork uh, or behaviors that are illegal while people are cycling in cork about is it 2018, I suppose? Um, and the campaign at the time thought it would be a good idea for them to go in to meet the guards to talk about some of those issues, like, you know, how we could help, whether we could improve messaging, um, and equally talk about some of the experiences that people who cycle face. So, like, um, when we break a red light in our cars and we break a red light cycling, we're usually doing so for different reasons. Um, like, when we go through a red light in our car, we're usually accelerating because it's going from orange to red or it's just turned to red. But when people cycle through a red light, they're usually decreasing their speed uh, because they're coming up to the junction, they're checking if it's safe to proceed and then they're proceeding through it. So um, the Cork Cycling Campaign thought it was a good idea just to kind of you know show some of our experiences. Um, and then um, 
you know, those meetings have become quite regular and, you know, they're quite positive meetings. Um, I think at senior levels in a lot of the cities, there is an emphasis on safety. There's an emphasis on getting the numbers of fatalities down. Um, and there's an appreciation that, look, some of the people who engage in these behaviours of walking and cycling can inform some of our decision-making and they can highlight some of the issues. Um, you know, that it's not that, you know, this is the most progressive uh, approach. You know, it, it's already far behind what's in Europe, but in terms of where it's come from, you know, in the last seven years, it's a huge leap forward. Um, back in 2014 and 2015, uh, Cork would have installed its first um, generation of city centre cycle lanes and as part of the planning process uh, the guards locally would have been uh, consulted on some of those cycle lanes and if anyone knows Cork, like, you know, these are kind of um, on very common streets uh, Washington Street, Western Road, Pope's Quay, uh, Anglesey Street the the guard who responded officially from on guard of Chicana uh, objected that nearly every one of those cycle lanes and uh, it was kind of like a pro rata response where they said this will affect the, the cycling will affect the ability of the city to flush traffic at rush hour. Um, you know, which was kind of a strange way to look at um, infrastructure that was going to help people move around the city with more safety and, you know, help a lot of people leave the car for short trips and actually take the bicycle. Um, so, you know, looking at the last seven years has been a huge leap forward. It's great to see that emphasis on safety is there among senior management. But again, thinking of the police culture, it's quite common to see differences between management culture and rank and file culture. And it is for management to take action to make those attitudes what is accepted at rank and file level. So if management is saying, let's do what's safe, a local community guard should be singing from the same hymn sheet rather than saying, well, it may annoy drivers if we enforce the laws. Can't talk to us about possible solutions. One thing that nearly everyone who cycles in Ireland would experience is a close pass, where you know a person is driving past you and not enough space is given to ensure your safety. There is recommendations on that, so um, it's one meter in speed zones under fifty and one point five meter in speed zones over fifty. Um, but you know, chances are if you hop on a bike in any town or city in Ireland today you probably get a few kilometers before someone overtakes you and doesn't give those distances. So in, in England, many of the um, the policing authorities um, proactively go out and they put a police officer on a bicycle uh, and they'll go down a road and when they are close past, then they'll pull over that person driving and they'll say, okay, it's not necessarily that you've broken the law in terms of, you know, here's your fine. They'll often bring them in for training. Um, you know, it might be like a morning where you have to go in and you know you look at the dangers. Um, in other areas, they'll they'll put on a mat, um, and you know they'll they'll show visually what that space looks like, and they'll talk to people. Uh, they're very active on social media. Um, a lot of the English um, policing, especially in England, a lot of the, um, the policing authorities would you know have a dedicated officer who's going into the comment section on Facebook and is addressing you know misconceptions or beliefs. Uh, about people who cycle so like if there's something along the lines of you know this that the other about cyclists or you know this is typical of cyclists the police officer will go in using an official police account and they'll say look here's the law you, you know here's your responsibilities when you drive and uh, you know this is an untruth and it might be something simple as you know 
cyclists shouldn't be on that road and the guard will spell out no they have a right to be on that road just like anyone does if they're walking if they're cycling if they're you know horse riding you have a driver have a responsibility to pass them safely or you know to drive at the speed um, there are things we don't see in Ireland like um, the Garda traffic um, Twitter account very very rarely engages with people you know like social media supposed is giving a voice to people who've you know run out of options um, and you know if you are calling an illegal parking at a Garda station five days a week and nothing's been done well on the sixth day you're probably just going to post it on their social media and you might say look this car is still here you know why isn't this being addressed um, so I think definitely there's space for, for the guards in Ireland to be on social media and, and to be very proactive um, because, you know, someone's views today could become someone's actions tomorrow. You know, if I say something derogatory about someone horse riding today, you know, chances are tomorrow if I see someone horse riding and I'm driving past them, I'm going to have a negative view of them before I even start overtake. And when you dehumanize someone or a negative view to them, you're probably going to give them less courtesy, less respect, and that's something things start getting... You know, great in terms of are you going to give them the space to to be on that horse safely? Are you going to hold back and wait till it's, it's clear on a road? Are you going to beep the horn at them when you pass? Are you going to you know allow your maybe one of your passengers to shout a derogatory term at them uh, when you're on the horse? Uh, and these are the kind of things that you know people experience in Ireland, and um, you know especially female cyclists, they they really bear the brunt of the abuse that people experience when cycling in Ireland, you know, it's very common for, uh, if, if two women are cycling 50 kilometers, uh, at, you know, on a Sunday morning on a recreational cycle, from the people I've spoken to, they'll probably get shouted at at least twice. I'm on the mail, I'm six for two. I'm, I suppose I have a bit of privilege in that respect. I don't experience that. I might get close past, but like people aren't shouting out the window, telling me where to go, or do you know that I'm stupid or commenting on my clothes? Um, or you know catcalling so yeah I think if, if we can address the rhetoric on social media you would like to think that it would have a direct impact on the road uh, and what people experience on our streets and on our roads. At the heart of this is really thinking about what the guards role in roads policing is and why they're doing it. We need a paradigm shift in roads policing that's really what I'm uh, wanting to say here and the paradigm shift has to be in tune with government policy, which is we've got to de-emphasize driving and we've got to get many more people choosing to go out on a bike, to go to school, to go to college, to go to work. And we've got to alter that huge imbalance in the gender ratio between, you know, who is actually using a bike to go to school or, or to work. And that requires buy-in from on Garda they've got to change how they police traffic. Because unless they do that and buy into the government policy on climate crisis, then we're not going to see, we're going to find it very difficult to get more people to leave the car at home. I'm very grateful to Khan for sharing his experiences. Certainly for me, the conversation made me think about issues of cycling and policing through a completely different lens. This idea of institutional blindness which Mike from Cyclist.ie talks about, is very important and it chimes with research on police culture to say that the police may have a bias in favour of drivers when exercising their power and discretion. We'll be continuing on this theme next week when we speak to Neil about the Guard investigation that took place 
when his sister Donna was killed in a road traffic collision. This episode was produced by Tony Groves and Brian Ickers ahead and a big thanks to them. And thanks to our listeners for the support, shares and comments. It's all appreciated. Thank you.